Why don't we uh, stand together as we read Romans 5, we'll be in verses 6 through 11 today. And these are the words of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for, uh, again, this letter to the Romans and how uh, more than giving us the pragmatic five steps to personal spiritual victory, it, it always relates uh, us back to who you are. And in knowing who you are, we're rooted deep in your love, in your mercy, in your kindness, in your justice, and even uh, understanding your, your wrath. And so, God, we want to come today to learn more about who you are, how you've created us to be, what you did for us on the cross so that we would be reconciled to you. We would have friendship with you. Um, we are grateful for, again, this time in your word. Uh, I pray that you would challenge us, that we would recognize sin in our hearts that needs to be confessed and repented of, and we can believe in your mercy and your grace that sustains us each and every day. Pray for those who are hurting, whether it be in relationships or finances or illness. Uh, we know that you have a plan and that your plan is moving forward and that you can heal, you can direct, you can empower, you can do miracles. And sometimes those miracles are us drawing closer to you by your pursuit of us. We're thankful for that. Uh, we're thankful for new babies that are being uh, born into the life of our church, even the Oglesby, uh, Oglesby this, uh, Oglesby's this last week. Um, thank you for their birth of their child and um, all that is entailed in that, and we'll hear more about that later. But uh, we're grateful for you bringing new life into this world and into the life of our church. Uh, I pray that, again, our um, meditations and our thoughts would be centered on you, that the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you and glorifying to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Is anyone from the great state of Missouri? Missouri. Missouri? Is that how you pronounce it? Missouri. No? I know a couple folks out in the children's ministry are. I got a lot of respect for the state of Missouri. And one of the reasons why is I love their slogan for their state. Does anybody know what their slogan is? The show me state. Yes, uh, it's on their license plates. And I always wondered where that particular slogan came from. And um, there's two stories that it relates to, and no one really knows where it started. But one of them is a, a congressman named Willard Duncan who lived, or excuse me, who served in the Congress from 1897 to 1903. Um, he was known to tell his friends that he was from Missouri, a state of corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats. And frothy eloquence neither convinces or satisfies. You'll have to show me, is what he would used to, used to say. And then there's another story that actually takes place here in Colorado, that up in Leadville there was a miners' strike. 
And a bunch of new miners came from the state of Missouri, and, and as a way of, um, it was a little bit of a, a deprecation towards them. The Leadville miners, when they saw the Missouri miners coming, knew that they didn't know what they were doing up in the Leadville mines, and so they said, you'll have to show them. So those are the two stories uh, that, that point to that particular slogan, the show me state. Um, I think it's both of those things that, that began to become the slogan or the reason behind the slogan for Missouri. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about to, uh, today about how God shows us his love and that love is something that is shown more than talked about. I think it's very popular, especially culturally and maybe in our lives today, that we talk a lot about loving people. We say we love, we tell people we love them all the time. Uh, but we don't demonstrate necessarily what love looks like. And God demonstrated his love for us in that Christ died for us, forgave us, gave us his mercy. And so uh, I want to start there. But I also want to uh, help us understand that when we are in this book, the book of Romans, we are learning more about God. And because we believe that God is the only one who can transform us. And he does it in the best way possible, which is from the inside out. He starts in the heart. He changes the heart, and then from the inside out, we begin to understand who he is, and we begin to reflect that in our lives. And the best way uh, that we can do that, again, is to know God fully and put him at the center of everything that we are and everything that we do. And love, I believe, true love, is most certainly uh, the probably the most elusive thing for humanity to grasp. And again, it's because love is an action and not a feeling. Many times we think it's the opposite. We talk, or excuse me, like to talk about love, and we think that because we feel something and we talk about it uh, on a consistent basis, that that makes us loving. God says differently. His love, uh, as we learned last week, has been poured into us, and it is poured into us overflowing through the Holy Spirit. And so this next passage that we're going to get into helps us understand the nature of God's love. So the first teaching Uh, for this week, is that God's love is for the weak. God's love is for the weak. It says right at the beginning there in verse 6 that while we were still weak, that uh, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God's love is for the weak. Now, a lot of times we look at that and we think God's love is for the downtrodden, uh, the, the weak in terms of maybe physical weakness, spiritual weakness, Uh, Literally, what this means is that God's love is for the immoral, the ungodly, the weak in terms of righteousness. God's love is for the people who cannot attain uh, their own self-righteousness. They can't match the standard that God has laid down that you must be perfect in order to have access to him. So it's not talking about a physical or emotional or a mental weakness. It's speaking specifically here of a spiritual and moral weakness. You cannot earn the hope of salvation through your good works. And so Paul says, while you were still sinners, while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, while we were still ungodly, that Christ died for us. Um, this word, uh, again, weak, is, is literally means morally unsound or helpless in our ability to be good enough. And then Paul says that why we're still, uh, still sinners at the right time. At the right time. 
this is speaking to the right time in history, that God's timing is perfect, that his plan is perfect, and he will be glorified by the death of his son. And Jesus' time on this earth was perfectly orchestrated to come as the Messiah who would be killed or sacrificed for the sins of his people. So at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. What is happening here? Well, Paul is explaining that God, in his perfect timing, did not come to destroy rebellious sinners. Instead, he came to die for them. Now, there is going to be a time in history, at the end of history, that God will come to establish his kingdom in full glory. And when he does that, he will come to destroy or to judge rebellious sinners and to cast them into hell separated from uh, God for eternity. But in the case of Jesus coming to the earth the first time, the first advent of Christ, he came uh, for the ungodly to die for them. So who are these folks, these ungodly folks that is mentioned here? Who did Christ die for? Well, it's not righteous people. Now, why do we say that? Scripture's clear. There are none that are righteous. Not one. Not one of us, even in our our things that we think are our good works or the rightness of things that we've done, none of us match the righteousness of Christ or the perfection that God demands. And because of that, there are not righteous people. So God did not die for righteous people. That's great for me. I hope it is for you as well. Um, I am not righteous. There are none that are righteous. We are all ungodly in God's sight. So he didn't die for the righteous people. And he didn't die for good people. Now, the word good there is generous people, selfless people. Uh, Jesus didn't come to die for people who are generous, good, or selfless. And the reason why is there are no good, generous, selfless people. According to Scripture, even our philanthropy, our goodness, um, our, our desire to quote-unquote help each other or help other people is a sign of us wanting to draw to ourselves attention. It's a prideful thing at times that Scripture discusses. So he didn't come to die for the righteous ones nor the good ones. And then he goes on to say in this passage that most people, as he refers to us and the people that he's speaking to, Paul says most people don't really want to die for anyone. There are great stories, of course, that people sacrifice their life for others. And Paul says that people will die sometimes for others because of a few reasons. Number one, they love them. There's a feeling and an affection for a particular person. And so the, the, uh, I am willing to die for them. I would probably, hopefully die for my family. If they were in danger, I would want to sacrifice myself for them. I love them. I have an affection for them. Um, there are people that you care about. A lot of times in, in war, you'll hear, you'll talk to people that are on the battlefield and they say, um, I'm not here necessarily fighting for my country. I'm here fighting for my brothers or sisters that are in this foxhole with me. I want to die for them. I care about them. And so I'm willing to die for them. And maybe they, they not only care about them, but they're close to people. We'll die for people that we're close to. So we have an affection for them. We'll die for those people. But it is rare that people will die even in those situations for another. 
But literally, no one would ever sacrifice themselves for their enemy. True love, as demonstrated by Christ on the cross, is Christ dying for his enemies. Christ dying for those who have declared war on him. This is a theological uh, underpinning and foundational understanding in the Christian faith that it's not that you make mistakes as a sinner and that you're kind of ignorant about what God requires. You are willfully, I am willfully rebellious and declaring war on Jesus and he comes to die for me. Christ died for those who have declared war on him. Paul is making this significant statement that Jesus and demonstration of true love looks like Jesus dying on the cross for people that put him there. Sinners, that Christ died for sinners. Sinners, literally in the word, it's really funny how, how Paul says this when he says that, that, um, that Christ died for, for sinners. Sinners literally means sinful, sinning sinners. Like it's in your DNA. It's an ongoing uh, thing in our blood, in our DNA, that we are willfully and wantonly rebellious. Sin is not done out of ignorance. It is done out of a heart that wants to rebel against God. So what is love? Paul answers that question. He says that God shows us or demonstrates to us true love. True love is dying for your enemy so that he can be made your friend. I have to admit, when I read that, it's such a foreign thing to my understanding in my flesh. I can understand maybe sacrificing myself for a friend or maybe even a stranger that is in a bad situation that I don't know, but, but to die for your enemy... And not just to die for them, because a lot of people would maybe die for an enemy, or maybe some people would die for an enemy, and then they would feel superior about that. Of course, they wouldn't be alive to feel their superiority, but you get my point. Like, we would do that out of a, a look at how great that person was that he died. Jesus not only died for his enemy, he died so that his enemy would be made his friend. Jesus' words on the cross uh, are, are reminiscent to me of this because what does he say? He says on the cross, forgive them for they don't understand what they are doing. And he's not pointing to ignorance there. He's instead pointing to their unwillingness to understand. Reflect back to Romans chapter 1 where he says that in our suppression of the truth, we push down understanding and we're willing to sin uh, and put Christ on the cross. And it's not of ignorance, it's a willingness, or excuse me, it's not a willingness to understand. It's a suppression of the truth. Jesus dies to show us the love that he has for us. It's not just a message, but it is a demonstrable act that in lieu of the theological facts was done towards people who hate God. The demonstration does three things. It shows us that God's saved ones are miraculously saved. 
You cannot save yourself and you cannot choose God. You must be saved by him. He must regenerate your heart. And we'll get into that as we go through the book of Romans, that there is no person who chooses God. No one seeks after him. We saw that earlier in this letter to the Romans that none of us want to save ourselves. None of us want to have a relationship with God. We want to sin. We want to do our own thing. We want to go our own way. But the demonstration of his love towards us shows us that his saved ones are miraculously saved, that God regenerates the heart. It also, uh, the demonstration of God's love shows us that we don't have that type of love in ourselves. We are incapable of it. We don't understand what it means to die for an enemy to make us his friend. Third, the demonstration of Jesus' love shows us the type of love that has been poured into us through the Holy Spirit, which is reflective back to verse 5 of this chapter. So Jesus dies to show us, not just tell us about the love, but to show us the love that he has for us. He changes our hearts. He shows us that we're incapable of that type of love, and yet he pours his Holy Spirit into us, which gives us the love of Christ for him and for others. So what is love? It's a proof that God's love and the lengths that he will go to in our rebellion to love us are overwhelming. Remember, in Romans chapter 1, it says that God's um, truth about who he is, that we're without excuse, so his love demonstrated on the cross is rejected by some even though it is plain to them. Our rebellion and our sin is never accidental. Now, in this passage, in verse 9, um, Paul tells us the good news. And you hear this term thrown around a lot, and it's getting confusing. Like, I'm starting to get confused. I have a master's degree in, in theology, and when I hear people say the term, the good news, even if they say the good news of Jesus Christ, um, I have to ask them what good news they're talking about, because Scripture is clear about the good news. Some people come to Christ and they think the good news is God is going to uh, prosper me. He's going to solve all of my relational issues, my financial problems. He's going to heal all of my um, you know, emotional hurts and habits and hang-ups. And that is part of Jesus working in our lives. So I guess you could call it good news. But the good news, the good news of the gospel is what is mentioned here in verse 9. Um, it starts with this, and I, and I would say the crux of the good news is this. Number one, the good news is Christians, I and you who are followers of Christ, have been justified by his blood. That is good news. You have been justified by his blood. And secondly, the crux of the good news is this. I will be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. Okay. Um, you know, a few years ago, I, I found myself to be slightly overweight. So I went on my, my uh, special meat, beans, and vegetables diet. And I lost like 50 pounds. And I was so happy. And you know, like when you do a, a diet and you lose like a lot of weight, there's something about the reward for that. 
You know, the reward part of that where it's like, man, I lost 50 pounds. I'm going to gain 60 just to celebrate. (laughs) Have you ever gone through that? And there's this, this process of, you know, I want to be healthy and I want to, you know, lose weight or I want to get in shape. I want to do this. And it's kind of this up and down experience and you get obsessed with it, but it's very short lived. Like it's very um, petty when you look at the eternity of your existence that you can, yes, in this short life, you can be in good shape. You can have lots of friends. You might have lots of money. You might have a good life or what people would call a good life on this planet. Folks, the wrath of God is forever. And if you don't know Jesus, you will not be spared the wrath of God. Scripture teaches us that the punishment of God, the wrath of God, as it's poured out on people into eternity in a, in a literal place called hell, that God will be there watching over that, pouring his wrath, uh, wrath out on those folks forever. So it is very good news to me that, number one, I've been justified by the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and I will be saved, secondly, by Jesus from the wrath of God. That is the good news. There are other aspects of Jesus and his work in the kingdom and the gospel, uh, uh, the good news of Jesus working in the world to bring all things and to restore all things back to himself. But for me, the crux of the good news is being justified by his blood and being saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. Now that message of the good news has fallen out of vogue. And the reason it's fallen out of vogue is because People do not want to believe themselves as destined for eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. They would rather think of themselves as, hey, you know, I'm pretty good. I just need a little improvement. I just need a little extra Jesus on the top of my life because I've done a pretty good job in being a good person in doing the right things, in trying to, you know, uh, make sure that people think well of me in, in my life. And so to think I need to be justified by a blood sacrifice of a perfect man who died for me, and I need to be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God, that doesn't, that doesn't really resonate with kind of the modern day American cultural aspect of what the gospel is. So what do we do? Well, we try to soft sell it. We only focus on the goodies that God can give. And instead of calling people to repentance and belief so that they will be justified and saved from the wrath of God, we want to talk to them about how cool it could be on this earth if they would give Jesus a chance. Folks, let me tell you, it'll be cool on this earth if you give Jesus a chance. But that is not... The, the crux of the good news. The crux is I need to be justified. Well, what is justified? Justified is acquitted, set free, put in right relationship with. And through Jesus' obedience, his righteousness, I am made obedient and righteous. And I can obey God and follow him and love him through my obedience. 
See, so being justified is really important. You need to be acquitted, set free, put in right relationship. And you need to become, through the Holy Spirit's empowerment, obedient. Because true joy in the life of a Christian and in the life of any human is related to being obedient to the God who made you. Now that might be difficult in the 70 or so years, 60 if you eat too many cheeseburgers, uh, uh, or 80 if you do a lot of push-ups. I don't know how long it's going to be for, for you. But that's a short period of time. And I want to be justified, acquitted, so that I can experience obedience on this planet, which is true joy. And I can also rely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ to allow me to spend eternity with God. Because when God will see me on, quote unquote, the judgment day, he will see Christ's righteousness given to me on my, by, uh, on, on, uh, my behalf from the Son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's justified. I didn't do anything in that. I didn't argue my case. I didn't break my own chains. I didn't put myself in right relationship with Christ because no one seeks Christ. And I'm certainly incapable of true obedience to Christ in and of myself. I need Jesus to justify me for all that. I also need to be saved. I need to be saved. This is not, again, saved in the sense of, you know, I'm almost uh, uh, in a dangerous position. And if someone will just kind of throw me the life raft or, or the life preserver, I can swim to it and hang on to it and save myself in cooperation with the other person saving me. I need to be saved, period. I cannot do anything to meet God halfway for my salvation, Uh, God alone can rescue and heal me, which is what saved means in the context of this passage. I need to be justified and I need to be saved. And only through Christ can that happen. And folks, that is the good news. Justified and saved. There are implications for eternity and there are implications now. And I get to obey and I get to see others reconciled to Christ because of the justification and salvation that Jesus gives me. But I need to be, and the good news is that Jesus justifies and Jesus saves. Now, the last teaching of this passage in verse 10 and 11 is that Jesus gives us reconciliation. Now, if I was uh, the leader of a, of a country... Um, you know, the, these leaders of countries, they're constantly entering into these peace talks. Like we're going to have, you know, a peace talk or some sort of talk with North Korea. And we do that with China and other countries do it with other countries. And, and we all get together and we bring to the table, you know, the things that we're willing to pitch in to do to have peace with other countries. Jesus gives us reconciliation, we don't come to the peace talks and pitch in. Like, because it says here that while we were enemies, Paul has these very clear ways for me, like I went to high school in Rifle, Colorado. I got to keep it, it's got to be clear. It's got to be black and white. 
Paul says that while Aaron, you were an enemy, Jesus came to reconcile you. Nothing changes in my moral or spiritual self. I have not gone through an enlightenment and the same stuff that has been going on in all of human history will continue to go on in all of human history. But without Christ, we are enemies to God. So why we were enemies, even so, we were reconciled to him. What is reconciled? Reconciled means this. You make things right with another. When we come to the table, for instance, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you take uh, communion at our church, we ask you to be reconciled to someone that has sinned against you or you've sinned against or both of you have sinned against each other. We want you to reconcile that. We want you to make it right with one another. But that is not eternal or, or um, the theological depth of the reconciliation being talked about here that we're reconciled to God through Christ. Paul is clearly saying that we did not come to make things right with God. Instead, God brought us to himself and made things right with himself by himself. That is so much easier. That is so much more peaceful to me. Like, I don't have to do anything to be reconciled to God. I am reconciled to God through Jesus Christ the Son, and He brings us to Himself. He makes things right with Himself by Himself. Jesus' death was the way that God did this. And because of Jesus' death and his reconciling of us to himself, we are also, it says in this passage, saved by his life. Uh, I know a lot of people, when they read this, they like, man, I wonder what that means. Does that mean that if I will act like Jesus acted, I will kind of save myself? Or is the fact that Jesus just lived on the planet, does that mean that people can have you know, be saved by that. And, and it's a little bit of an esoteric example. And people use that of like, if I'll just live like Christ, I'll be saved. That's not what it means. We're saved by his life means this. Jesus' death was powerful enough to reconcile us to God because his life was perfect. He is the only perfect man who has ever lived on the planet. He's the only perfect man who did everything exactly according to the righteous standards of God the Father who sent him to this earth to live a perfect life and to die. So, when you hear someone in the church say that we don't know if Jesus lived a perfect life or not, but his example of this great life is what we want you to live. Please stand up and walk out. That is not truth. Jesus had to live a perfect life. That is part of the sacrifice that he had to give. He had to live a perfect life. And that is the righteousness that we get and therefore saves us in, in lieu of how God sees us. We get his perfect life on our behalf. His death again, was powerful enough to reconcile us to God because his life was perfect. And God needed a perfect sacrifice for our reconciliation. Yet, 
we have people in the church still telling us that Christ was just an example on how to live. Jesus was proof of our inability to live according to God's standard, and he shows us our need for a Savior who was perfect and who died for us. Now, that's great, but more than that, Paul says, we rejoice in the reconciliation that we have with God. We rejoice in the reconciliation that we have with God. So Paul is saying here that more than just being saved, we are also made right with God. Now, I know a lot of us walk in two different worlds in our our Christian life. A lot of times we think that God is this, uh, maybe this big disciplinary bully in the sky who is waiting to, you know, hit us with the Holy Spirit hammer for the sins that we've committed. And then there's other of us that take Jesus lightly. There's no fear of God. We feel like, hey, you know what? Jesus died for me. I can pretty much do whatever I want. God's not going to care that much. And if I do sin, it's not that big of a deal that God will just kind of look over it and smooth over it and everything will be fine. You rejoice in your reconciliation with God because in your reconciliation, you were made right with him. And it literally means that he, um, through Jesus Christ, you have a friendship with the father. Now, it's not maybe like the friendship that you had in college with some of your fraternity brothers or sorority sisters. It's a holy friendship. It's a friendship that puts you back in a right relationship with him in terms of the way things ought to be and the way things, that, uh, the, way the things were in the garden prior to Adam's sin. We're going to talk about Adam and Jesus next week, which is um, really fascinating, but we'll get there next week. Jesus' reconciliation to the Father allows you to live in a way that you uh, can live in accord with what it was like in the garden prior to Adam's sin. Now, this means a lot to me, and there's a lot of practical applications and implications of this, and we can't get into all those, but this is what it means. You have a relationship that you've always wanted with God through Jesus reconciling us to God on the cross. So Paul turns a corner in this letter, and he starts to tell us, yeah, you're a sinner, There is no one righteous. There is no one who seeks God. That Jesus needed to die for you. He was the perfect sacrifice for you. His righteousness is given to you. You are justified. You are saved. It is good news. But more than that, you can rejoice because you are in a right relationship with the Father. It's as if Adam's sin doesn't need, uh, it needs no longer to taint your ability to relate to your father. It is an uninterrupted direct access to a relationship with the creator of the universe. So, application, what what can we do to apply this? You can walk in justification. You can live in your salvation, you can experience a reconciled relationship with the God who created you by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is truly living. 
And next week, we're going to talk, as I said, about Adam and Jesus, what life looks like as sons and daughters of Adam and what it looks like when we are saved and walk as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. There's a big difference. But you can be reconciled to Jesus. This body that was broken and this blood that was shed makes peace with God. It restores a right relationship with your Father. It is no longer you trying to earn more of God's favor. You have done all that you can do through Jesus Christ the Son. He has done it on your behalf, and because of that, He is your friend. When we come to the table today, remember that your sin taints your relationship with God. He has made a way through Jesus Christ for you to experience a fullness of relationship, a peace with God that takes away the wrath that is due us for our sin. You are forgiven. You can come to Jesus boldly into his throne room. You can confess your sin. You can be empowered by the Holy Spirit with wisdom, with direction, with power, with purpose. All because Christ has justified and saved you. Let's pray. Father, your love is demonstrated. It's not a philosophical concept that we have to understand without seeing it visibly. It was shown to us on the cross. And the power of that is that it was done on the cross for your enemies for those who wantonly and willfully rebel against you. And now we have a friendship. We've been reconciled. We are loved sons and daughters of the creator of the universe. That should give us great peace that in this short period of time that we have on this earth, we can live for your glory. We can live in right relationship with others. We can even maybe at times, as Christ did, love our enemies and those who persecute us. Because we are headed for a greater eternity than we can imagine. We have more coming uh, for us in our perfection in heaven than we'll ever experience on this earth. That is good news. I pray that as we take this bread and we dip it in the wine or juice that represents your blood, that we will know we are forgiven, that we are reconciled, and that we can walk in boldness with you as our Lord and as our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.